0: Good morning, Room 1027. This is the front desk. Please let me speak to the magenta head. No, no, the magenta head. Fine, pass the word then, I don't care. We have your transportation ready. I'm sending bellboys up to help with your bags. What do you mean you have exponentially more? On second thought, I do not really want to know. Goodbye. the weekly report. To Mademoiselle Rouge, Viscountess and owner of Hotel Daydream and Reverie Estates. Before I delve into the particulars, let me say I think you made the right decision in allowing Miss Agama and her family sanctuary here at the hotel. I have set Miss Agama up in one of our gothic suites, room 889 e The vaulted ceilings and floating buttresses will give her parents adequate room once they arrive. Or at least, it should. I confess, I have no idea if that room or any of them can provide adequate accommodations for a basilisk and a snallygaster. We have never had any as clients before. Her father should be comfortable. From what I was able to learn through some divination with the help of a few cleaning witches, snallygasters are approximately the same size as your uncle Magnus. Though, they might be a bit bigger. A basilisk, however. No amount of divination, cleromancy, kiaosim, or tassiography have helped in trying to prepare for Miss Agama's mother, Hislop. Miss Agama has kindly explained her mother's relative size, but we currently do not possess any rooms with enough space for beings... Let me see. Yes. Roughly 100 meters in length. Add to that the basilisk's infamous petrifying gaze and withering breath. Miss Agama, though, assures me her mother's vision is quite harmless now given the lenses she wears, and her breath has been easily remedied via lozenges made from golden apples. Evidently, they are distant relatives of the mythic serpent Ladon, who has been smuggling them the apples for some time. But that is neither here nor there. What is more pressing is the matter of retrieving parents. Expedition Update Given the current change in circumstances, the expedition team's assignment remains oddly unchanged, only instead of retrieving Latrice, they have been instructed to bring Peregrine and Hislop back to the hotel under clandestine cover. Latrice is alright, by the way. She is currently still here at the hotel pending the fallout from this whole situation. I would like to interview her about her ordeal at some point so we may better consider the safety of our employees, but that must wait for the time being. Many of the expedition team, however, expressed their confusion and apprehension about this change from seeking Latrice to these two other individuals with whom they have no knowledge. I did my best to allay their fears without revealing the whole of the circumstances. We are playing a precarious game now dancing in a legal grey area. I know the hotel has political immunity regarding the housing of certain guests, but Mugabe and Edwete in legal have confided in me that they are not sure if that precedent will hold up in the forums for basilisks specifically. Additionally, there is the hairy nature of keeping the basiliers in the dark about all of this. Gogaji and Ricky have, thankfully, sent me their reports ahead of sending them to Ujbarine, From what those reports say, and given Miss Agama's description of her parents' current hiding place, the Basileers are uncomfortably close to discovering them. We will need to act swiftly. Updates to follow, as I formulate a plan. Maintenance update. I still have not been able to get a hold of Daedalus for the needed repairs in Labyrinth Park. While I will keep trying, I have compiled a list of auxiliary potential designers known for their own labyrinthine work. Not ideal to be sure, but please consider these candidates, as guests are now exiting the labyrinth without so much as a shred of confusion. It really needs to be tuned up as soon as possible. The alternative candidates are Borges, Greg Bright, Amenemhat III, Danielewski, and Kafka. I have attached their relative portfolios for your consideration. Please let me know if you have any questions. On a separate note, I took the liberty of dropping by Mrs. Dwyer's home for existentially challenged objects. George the Coat Rack and the wishing coins from the fountain in Labyrinth Park have become very fast friends. They are often seen together taking long walks about the rest home often doing their rehabilitation exercises together. The staff has been very gentle in helping the coins get settled, though most of them are still struggling with depression. The staff and their own experiences with existential challenges seem to be a great source of comfort to many of the coins, and I can see why. I asked them where they were before volunteering at the rest home, and they mentioned that they were once a shepherd's crook. He was a very strange shepherd, however, and one day forgot them in a pasture entirely. Partially sentient at that time, the staff struggled with what to do until Mrs. Dwyer found them and helped them transition to a fully sentient entity. Not that I did not have respect for Mrs. Dwyer before this, but now that respect has been renewed after hearing about all she has done for the staff. Remarkable woman. Many of the coins are still coming to grips with not having their wishes come true, but that is something only time can help with. Though George the rack has his own struggles, their friendship seems to be doing both of them a lot of good. It is a shame the Statute of Exaltations annuls so much of the coins' magic. If they had all been tossed into the fountain for the same wish, it would have been much more likely to succeed. That is based on my very modest understanding of wishkinry. Housekeeping report. The piranha-patterned carpet in the suites overlooking the swimming pool have dismembered another guest. Fortunately, we learned from the last incident and kept the modern Prometheus health clinic on retainer for just such accidents. I have already contacted them, and Victor says hello and sends his best, by the way. There was a terrible mix-up with the liquors in the Neon Hour Club, the Entropy Lounge, and the other nightlife spots within the hotel. As you know, absinthe is one of the more popular spirits for- I'm sorry, I forgot we cannot say that for legal reasons. Uh, One of the more popular, um, imbibing beverages many of our guests enjoy. It was, unfortunately, mixed up with another strong drink on the inventory order form. Hiroko was the one who first noticed when guests at the Galmaferi Salon started getting swallowed up by nether-like tendrils. That in and of itself is not so unusual, only that the guests to whom this occurred seemed surprised when it happened. Combine that with how many underworld clients at the Salon were getting terribly inebriated, and Hiroko put 2 and 146 together and realized the mistake. It was a simple mix-up. As a result, Hiroko and I have tracked down the prospective psychopomps of the relative domains for those guests who now find themselves in various underworlds. After getting that squared away, Hiroko and I did some thinking and figured out where the mix-up came from. Hiroko has had a terrible cold ever since those fierce thunderstorms several weeks ago. Until the monsoons let up, her paper will be damp and has therefore clogged her sinuses. As a result, When she told some of the barkeeps to prepare absinthe for several guests, they must have misheard her. Absinthe is an equally popular beverage, but the mix-up should have become apparent to the barkeeps when pouring a libation traditionally reserved for ferrymen of the underworld was being given to patrons who were distinctly still alive. Needless to say, this generated a lot of paperwork, but everyone is now back in their proper domains. Kitchen Report We are having a bit of a problem with the Shinto god Fujin. While normally we try not to regulate or gatekeep guests' eating habits, Fujin has become particularly disruptive while dining. The issue arises during breakfast. Fujin requested natto rice and miso every morning during his stay. Gerard spent some of his culinary studies under Kuchin and knows how to prepare those dishes with excellence but the quality of the food is not the problem. The issue is how Fujin eats their natto rice, hurling it up into the air and blasting it with wind to try to steer the rice into his mouth. The fierce winds he conjures up blast starchy projectiles all over the dining space, much to the distress of our other guests. We can ask him to move to a private dining room, which would solve the problem, but the true issue is how to address this to him. As one of the elder Shinto gods, I do not wish to be disrespectful. But using his bag of winds to partake in meals is proving hazardous to our other guests' health. I would contact Izanagi for help, but I know he and his son's relationship has been unsteady ever since Fujin's mother died. Perhaps Takami Musubi could be of some help. I will keep you posted. Gerard has put in a request to reinstate the Schrodinger menu. A number of guests, including our resident political exile, the Wizard of Odds, have expressed interest in an implicitly uncertain carte du jour. I have tried to dissuade them of this. Gerard has made the point that the Schrodinger menu brought in the kinds of tourist clients we do not normally get at the hotel. I reminded him that catering to tourists is no longer a high priority for the hotel, but he keeps insisting. As much as we may dislike it, a number of guests have also accosted me to ask about the menu's return, so there is some merit to bringing it back. Of course final approval rests with you, but I have compiled a list of physicists who also have food prep experience, a very narrow overlapping set of skills to be sure. The number of individuals with both a doctorate and a culinary arts degree in superpositional cuisine is a short list indeed. Urgent notice. Two hours ago, I got word from the expedition team. They have been trying their best to get to the Agama's hiding spot, but the two basileers were on constant vigil. One of the bellboys on the team made a subtle attempt to draw Gogaji and Ricky away from the rest of the party. The effort, unfortunately, backfired and raised the two basileers' suspicions. They then forced the expedition team to stay behind while they pushed towards the hideout. A groundskeeper came running back to the hotel, informing me that unless they took direct action against the basileers soon, Hislop and Peregrine would be most certainly found. I briefly considered telling the expedition team to intervene, but the violent reputation of the basiliers grounded that idea. We needed to bring Elizabeth's parents to the hotel safely, but that could not involve the injury and potential deaths of any of our staff. I took a stroll in Labyrinth Park to try to think of an alternative solution. None readily appeared. The normally harrowing, claustrophobic confines of the labyrinth had been worn down so much, the normal epiphany of fear one gets from being there only came through as low-grade anxiety. I arrived at the center plaza with no new plans or ideas. I took a seat on one of the benches by the fountain and watched the water cascade over the statue of Perseus. Despite several millennia of getting bathed in water, I'm always impressed by its level of detail. I was in the midst of, wondering where the Minotaur got the sculpture, when who should come out of the labyrinth, but Elizabeth. She said she had come down to the park to try to calm her nerves. Sitting in her hotel room doing nothing but worrying about her parents was not helping anyone. She took a seat beside me and asked how retrieving them was going. The hesitancy in my reply was answer enough. She plied me with questions, and together we came up with a few ideas, some of which seemed promising, but the longer we sat with them, the more quickly they fell apart. There simply was not a way to sneak her parents away from the Basileers without direct confrontation. If it came to that, there was no guarantee Hyslop and Peregrine would win in a fight. Even if they beat the Basileers, giving them shelter at the hotel would become infinitely harder. They would have attacked two of Ujbarine's agents, which violates our own client code of conduct. We sat there for some time in the dregs of our failed plans, Elizabeth idly plucking loose scales from her arm and throwing them towards the fountain. Myself ceaselessly tapping my foot on the cobbles. Maybe there was no way to make this work. Perhaps sometimes, even with all of your resources... There simply is no solution. I sat back on the bench. The hiss of wind through the labyrinth's trees and the gentle splashes of the fountain making me feel profoundly empty. I felt like I should have been able to do more. That we were so close to something that could help. But we were just out of reach. I dismissed that thought. It would not help anyone to beat myself or anyone else up for what was an inherently problematic situation. It was wishful thinking, trying to find a way, too. And that is when it struck me. I looked between Elizabeth and the fountain, watching her throw her dry scales, like coins, into the trickling water. Of course, I thought. They were all just sitting there in Mrs. Dwyer's rest home. I seized Elizabeth by the shoulder. What? I think I have got something, but we will need a few buckets and several shovels. What are you talking about? There is no time. Go to the groundskeeper's shed. There should be a couple of bellboys giving it a new coat of paint right about now. They can unlock it for you. Grab as many pails and spades as you can and meet me out front of the hotel. Quickly! She ran off as I sprinted to my office and got on the gramophone with Mrs. Dwyer. Yes, she said, the coins could be released into the hotel's custody, but why? I didn't have time to answer. I changed out the record on the gramophone and called legal. Mugabe answered and I told them to fax a set of custody documents to Mrs. Dwyer's home on the double. I then rushed off to meet Elizabeth. She had run into Ferdinanda and Jacqueline on the way as they lugged over a dozen sets of shovels and buckets to the portico. I grabbed some to help and we all sprinted to Mrs. Dwyer's home for existentially challenged objects. You have no doubt already put together the plan. We burst into the rest home. The staff said they had got our custody papers and that all they needed was the coin signatures and a few of mine on a few pages. While I finished filling out the paperwork, Elizabeth and the Dryads went to the coins' rooms, only to discover that they were not there. The staff checked the schedule. They were doing their afternoon painting session with George, out on the home's grounds. The group of us split up to search the gardens around the home. I was combing through a grove of willow trees when I found them. The coins were helping George hold his brush. Their canvases were Impressionist renderings of the columns of willows that surrounded them in tepid greens and the washed-out blue of the sky overhead. The coins were in the middle of saying something when they saw me. Such a pained expression came over their heads and tails. They turned away from me and began cleaning their brushes. I approached, meaning to say that I had come for the coins' help. But after seeing that expression on their faces, I stopped short, the words caught in my throat. I... I am here, I began, I am here to make an apology. Apology? George asked, having become aware of my presence. Yes, I said. The coins paused. I'm sorry I took you away from the fountain. Your home, I said. I had no real right to do that. I was following a procedure blindly and did not stop to think about the consequences. I did not stop to think about you. I was so focused on what was correct. I did not stop to think about what was right. The coins turned to face me. An apology isn't going to undo that, they said. At this, the sound of running feet drew near. Elizabeth and the Dryads came racing up, but stopped upon seeing us. They maintained their distance as I spoke. I know, I replied. I showed them the custody papers, but I have since learned of my error. The fountain is yours again, should you want it. But... There is another reason for my being here. I gestured to Elizabeth. There is a wish that needs to be made. A wish? The coins asked. Yes. Elizabeth said, stepping up. My parents are trapped out in the crimson forest. I need you to help get them to safety. The coins considered that a moment, then nodded. But as they reached out to sign the custody papers, George spoke. What about our painting? The coins paused, looking between their new friend and the path to their old home. You're not going to stay? George asked. I, the coins began. We discreetly stepped away to give them a moment. Some time later, they beckoned for us to return. The custody papers were signed and George was nowhere to be seen. At their signal, we shoveled the coins back into our buckets and began our solemn way back to the hotel. As we left Mrs. Dwyer's home, I tried to reassure the coins. You will see him again, I promised. Even if I have to carry you all the way back from the hotel every week myself. And with that, we sprinted to the labyrinth. It was much slower going on the way back, as the coins are considerably heavy. We were met on the way by one of the same groundskeepers as before. The Basileers had found the Agama's hideout. They were breaking in when the groundskeeper had left the expedition team. We redoubled our speed, but none of us are in remarkably good shape. The weight of the coins was slowing us down. We were barely going at a crawl by the time we reached the entrance to the labyrinth. The Minotaur was out front, trimming some of the hedges when she spotted us. Help! Elizabeth yelled. We need to get to the center now! Without a word, the Minotaur threaded her arms through all of the loops of the buckets and charged off into the park. We followed at a brisker pace. Weaving in and around the loose bends until we emerged back into the fountain plaza at the center. The minotaur was about to dump the coins back into the fountain when the coins shouted for her to stop. We must be thrown into the fountain, the coins said, at the exact moment the wish is made or else it will fail. We all surrounded Elizabeth, each with a bucket full of the coins. The world grew perfectly still as Elizabeth formed the words. I wish that my parents were here with me. Safe. She nodded, and we flung the coins skyward. Glittering rain cascaded down the statue of Perseus and into the fountain as the coins, with shouts of glee, broke the water's surface. Then, A brilliant flash, the fresh smell of petrichor, a feeling of silk under our palms, and the splashing light of aquatic caustics across the plaza as there appeared, out of thick, humid air, the forms of two massive creatures. One was a mammoth snake with pronounced fangs and glossy eyes towering 18 meters high. Suspended in the air next to her was an enormous four-winged beast with a long neck and trunked legs. Its head was a mass of tentacles through which I could spy just hints of a razor-sharp beak. They had evidently been transported here in the midst of some violent action, given several pronounced gashes and injuries on their persons. All of that melted away once they saw Elizabeth. They embraced her in a colossal hug, eyeing the rest of us with suspicion. I made a short introduction of myself and the others, telling them they were safe for now. I write you this on one of the benches by the fountain. The Minotaur has agreed to leave the labyrinth and post this to your current address. I will remain here There is much I need to discuss with our new guests. I will keep you apprised as soon as I can, though I hate to leave you on such a note. I will speak with you soon, my dear friend. Report submitted by yours respectfully, Lino Altrueri, Head Concierge and Manager for Hotel Daydream. Hotel Daydream was voiced and written by Steven Kousler. This episode featured the guest voice of Alyssa Ghosts as Elizabeth. Our theme music is by John Divin. Additional music in this episode was by Nezrality, Cybercutie, Music Unlimited, Sergey Quadrado, Julius H, and TRG Banks with special performances by the fourth and fifth pieces of Ravel's Mamarlois, performed by Felipe Saro. Augustin Barrios Mangoré's Waltzes, Opus 8, Number 3, performed by Tarek Harb. Chopin's Etude, Opus 10, Number 4 in C sharp minor, Torrent, performed by Edward Nieman. Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, Op. 27, No. 2, third movement, Presto, performed by Paul Pittman. Barodin's String Quartet No. 2 in D major, first movement, Allegro Moderato, performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra. And Wagner's Das Liebesmal del Apostel, arranged for band and performed by the United States Marine Band you can find the links to these artists in the show notes. Transcripts for each episode can be found on the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hotel daydream or follow the link down in the show notes. If you have enjoyed the show, consider reserving a room with us on our Patreon. Guests at the hotel get access to all sorts of things, including shout outs at the end of each episode. Today, the hotel would like to recognize Danny the Spoon Lord, Gus Sanchez, Maggie B., Asher Klein, and Danny Denise. Thank you for supporting the hotel. I hope you have enjoyed your stay, and thank you for listening.